Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Folklands, created, written, and presented by Tim Downey and Justin Chubb. Episode 4, Hellfire and Damnation, Part 2. Welcome back to Part 2 of Hellfire and Damnation, our excursion underground. My name's Justin Chubb, and together with Tim Downey, my friend and fellow writer-performer, we're out exploring folklore, myths and legends on location all around Britain. In today's episode, we're going to find out about a curious cavern discovered accidentally in the 18th century, filled with wonderful but quite eerie and mysterious carvings known as the Royston Cave. But first of all, we're going to go back to where we left you last time, in part one, in the hands of our guide Willow crossing what was then known as the River Styx on our descent to the lowest inner sanctum of the Hellfire Caves, MP and socialite Sir Francis Dashwood's notorious secret club founded in 1755, in which orgies and drunken debaucheries took place in the dark chalk caverns under the church and mausoleum on his estate, and where his chapter of select members, robed in mock religious garb, performed rituals in the name of their spiritual leader, Satan himself. You rejoin us as we enter the lower chamber, one step closer to hell. So it's about half the size of the other room. Yeah. This is where they were said to have had all of the sacrificial meetings of the club, where they would have potentially summoned the devil. We're looking back from the chamber up mm. a slightly curving tunnel, and yeah, you just kind of expect a figure to suddenly appear. There's no air down here, maybe occasional drips, but it is 
silent. In the end of February this year, we had um, a production company come in to record a show, and they didn't tell us that they were bringing a Satanist with them. And I'm like, that's not good. He was asking whether he could burn Bible pages, and he drew a pentagram on the table, put five blood candles at each point, read an invocation from the Book of the Dead, hail Satan this, hail Satan that, and immediately you felt the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Barry Guy, he does Help My House is Haunted and that sort of shows, and he does all our you know events for us. Mm. And I went, what do I do? This doesn't seem good. Yeah. And he luckily he had an event with us that Saturday. He was like, don't worry, I'll bring some cleansers with me, cross with holy water, splash with holy water with a rosary. He put a blessed silver coin in the back of the wall. She closed the ritual down and went, well, that portal's never going to shut. Take this sage, take this sandalwood and go and cleanse your house tonight. So when you come down with the paranormal groups, mm-hmm. you come at night? Yeah, whatever people fancy. Yeah. And they so say, these YouTubers, we had it from 7pm till 4am. We were down here the whole time. And li- I've never had to remove myself from an investigation because it got too much. I was literally, I'm more of a feeler than anything. I don't really see, I mean, I've seen things, but again, mm-hmm. your eyes play tricks on you down here. The only way I can describe it is in Harry Potter when the Death Eaters fly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That sort of almost cloak, like, and it literally just sort of came down. I screamed out, what on earth is going on? Am I just sleep deprived? I've been here since 10 a.m. 10 a.m. Is this something? Yeah. Or is it mm. something more dark and sinister? Or a very, very long <laughs> Yes. Sandwich swore to bring about the end of John Wilkes. 
few days later, the Earl of Sandwich went with this poem, an essay on women in hand, which was written by Thomas Potter and John Wilkes. He strolled into the House of Lords and read it out for the whole of the House of Lords to, you know, listen to. John Wilkes was then exiled to France. You know, oh no, France. That kind of daunting. The French is so terrible. The French, you know, they'll yeah, they'll, 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 they'll deal with it. It's fine. And Thomas Potter was put in prison. Dashwood was, well, he was removed from his point of chance the Exchequer because he was that bad, but he did remain as a member of Parliament for the rest of his life. The caves were abandoned until eventually in the 1940s to 1960s, Sir Francis XI, he decided to rebuild the club. And so that's pretty much the story of the Hellfire Club. Amazing. Four years, years. you say, to dig this whole thing out. That's, that's, I mean, I struggle just kind of keeping my interest for like a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. I like it. I like devilry. So I'm going to dig out four years worth of tunnels. Fantastic. Yeah. It's more than likely that at least some of the people who were digging out got injured or killed because yeah. it's massive lumps of chalk. They were local people. They were local people. They were farmers because they were out of work because right. of these harvest failures. Oh, yes. Yeah. And they used to as well, they, you can see sort of the scorch marks on the walls. That's where they actually used to throw flammable liquid and light the walls on fire wow. so that they could have you know, light. They could have a source of light to see instead of them just using candles. Yeah. There were no more ancient chalk tunnelings here before Dashwood yeah. We know that the hill was sort of this pagan ritual site back in the 1100s, okay. so it's almost that there has been always some sort of heavy belief mm. or this energy that's been put into this place. Yeah, there's this direct kind of line through the village yeah. right up the hill. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a ley line that draws you towards it, but you mentioned up as well up, up on the horse near the yew trees, yeah. which were always planted in pagan druidic places. Mm. And then they were obviously built over when Christianization came mm-hmm. and things like that. So that was always a, a sign to say, yeah. this is an ancient place of worship of some description. And it is just so prominent. You yeah. did, whatever direction you're coming in, it's, it must have had some other power, some other mm-hmm. use. Mm-hmm. Also because it's on the Icknealed Way, yeah. you've got the Ridgeway. Yeah. So it's on that transit route that would take you up to Ely eventually as you go past Luton and all the way up mm-hmm. so it's on that route there is a there is a reason why it would be put here I suppose Sir Francis maybe in the Grand Tour he got the taste for paganism yeah and we, we know as well that the quote of the club that Fake say to be dry he actually got from Rabelais as well you know it's all these important people having influence on him and obviously all the architecture as well of the mausoleum of the house it's very Roman it's very Italian yes. it's got that you know, pillars, that Greek style. But I'm also imagining the hymns you, you, mm-hmm. you said. Yeah. Imagine the hymns being sung. With that echo. With this echo, with this thrum. Mm-hmm. You would hear that. This Lower flickery light. Candlelight darkness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can just hear this thrum. Yeah. Thank you so much. No, yes. thank you guys for coming. I absolutely love sharing all my knowledge. Wow, that's quite a contrast. That We're really is Very, a very lovely bright sunshine. We all need to warm up. Georgian as we drive off again. It's the Georgian dragon on if Ah, that's probably it, yeah. Masuki made was. The only ghostly experience I've ever had was with also with the Suki the maid. Oh. Down in Cornwall. She gets around a bit then. Yeah, maybe.
Maybe this was a generic name for maids, actually, though, thinking about <laughs> Now, I used to uh, write plays for a Cornish theatre company, and we go down every year and stay in a very, very old vicarage in Penryn called St Duvius, with Father John, the lovely um, incumbent that... Um, one year staying in this one room that I'd never stayed in before and in the middle of the night I woke up and I heard these owls hooting around the vicarage turned over in the bed and then I felt something get into the bed and hold me physically down with arms it was absolutely terrifying because it was a really physical thing and when you think of ghosts you don't think of a physical manifestation or something that you can feel think of insubstantial things. Yes, or things happening like something being knocked off a table or a curtain or yeah. other thing, but not physically. Not absolutely physical thing like that. So I was frozen with fear and it felt like it was several minutes, but it probably was only a matter of seconds and the weight, the arms let go of me. I turned on the light kind of expecting things to be flying around the room. There was obviously nothing there. Just stillness and darkness. And I, it was very, very intense. So I kind of went to the loo and left the door open to have some light coming into the room. And then in the morning, Father John, at breakfast, I was sort of thinking, do I say anything about this or do I just, you know... Because I knew I was going to be staying in the same room for three weeks after that while we were doing the play and... Anyway, so I did... He, he said, oh, you need to shut the door very firmly because it comes open. And I sort of said, well, actually, I left it open because this thing happened and I wanted some light, you know, yeah. or at least someone to run out if it happened <laughs> again. So he said, oh, yes, well, my brother won't stay in that room. He only stayed in it once. He won't stay in that room. Other people have had experiences in there, but only men had experiences in there and what did you think it was and I sort of said well I don't know why but I just felt it was maybe a woman that had kind of female energy and he said well yes that's that's what the theory is and then he gave me this book which was letters between Reverend Henry Temple who'd been there in the late 1700s and in fact Jane Austen had visited had her only recorded kiss in the vicarage and he was friends with Boswell Samuel Johnson's biographer and these letters sort of describe the story and the reverend his wife had died and then he had fallen in love with the serving woman Suki who was the maid in the house and his son, the reverend's son had taken against this woman there was some accusation of maybe that he'd molested or raped her or something. She was dismissed from the house and then he died, the Reverend died. Mm. And they think it's Suki, the maid, coming back to look for him because he says it's only ever men that uh, this affects. And another visitor who was staying in the vicarage at one point asked him, oh, who's, who's the lady... Who's the other woman saying? I saw a woman in black and white dress coming down the stairs. And actually a couple of other actor friends of mine who stayed in the same room have had, 
other experiences. This um, friend, Darren, who was doing one of the plays, was staying in the room. In the middle of the night, the same thing seemed to have happened, and he felt someone sit on his legs on the end of the bed. God. And he was, he's a quite a big guy, and he's completely sort of down to earth, and he said he was absolutely petrified and just put his head under the sheet, and eventually it sort of went. And then this other actor friend, David Kershaw, they were in the vicarage, again doing the, one of the plays, and they were all playing hide-and-seek around the uh, vicarage, because Father John likes a game. He likes a game or two after <laughs> summer. A sing-song around the piano. But, um, so he'd gone to hide in this room, David, and gone into one of the curtained alcoves, and he suddenly felt a hand gripping his arm. And he said it was terrifying. Behind, in, inside where he was hiding? Yeah, but there was no one there. So, uh, I kind of, I think, wow, yeah, something happened. And the next night when I slept there, I sort of wanted it to happen again to prove to myself... Yeah, that it wasn't just a trick of imagination. Yeah, yeah, but it didn't. And I sort of felt, as soon as the presence had gone, I felt this this is not going to happen again. It was almost like somebody looking for something. Yeah. And then I, I sort of said to Father John, have you ever seen her? And he said, well, actually, when he moved into St. Louis Vicarage, the first few nights he was there, he heard somebody walking up and down in the upper story, which is where the maids' quarters were, and he heard doors opening and closing. So then he took me into the little bathroom, and there was part of the wall, a cabinet kind of pulls away and there's yeah. this disguised staircase up to the maid's quarters which is now just the attic yeah. it's completely derelict but there are no doors up there at all and he'd heard people walking and doors closing and I said well you know what do you think and he said well she was here before me so I don't really you know I'm the interloper if anybody is but uh, yeah it was a very strange thing and it did make me kind of think, okay, maybe there is more to this than I have ever thought, you know, because yeah. I'm quite sceptical. I'd love to believe in things, but, you yeah. know, that's my one only experience of ghostliness, really. So we're just wending our way up to the Royston Caves. It's looking a bit rainy now. Well, good news is we're going underground. Oh, good. There's a, there's a phrase about those that come from Hertfordshire, the Hertfordshire hedgehogs, because you were prickly. Quite, because you were prickly, exactly. You were prickly and you were lazy. That was a phrase. It's a tough cross to bear. Yeah. I don't know if hedgehogs are intrinsically lazy, are they? It wouldn't be the first thing that springs to mind. Oh, you're as lazy as a hedgehog. I know they love creosote. Do they? If you creosote your fence, they will come and rub themselves very excitedly across the creosote. Mm, I didn't know that. It's probably like some sort of drug trip. Like a kind of catnip. Yeah. Might even catch a glimpse of the Roy Stone. Oh. Where Royston gets its name. Of course, I hadn't even put two and two together. So legend says, in the middle of a roundabout now. Okay. Uh, having been shifted around. Probably near Asda. Um, 
I would hope it is just outside an Adster near the Halfords. <laughs> ah, there's the Checkers Inn. Yeah. And there is another legend inn. I've got it in my book somewhere. Maybe there's lots of Checkers Inns. Okay. But there's Anstey, so it's a different Checkers Inn. Yeah, Blind George was this blind fiddler in Anstey. And there was a thing called the Devil's Hole Cave in a mound under where Anstey Castle stood. And no one would enter the tunnels because they were the abode of demons. But he said, I will go in because I can't see and I will play my fiddle. So he went in and he went in with his dog. His faithful dog. They heard him playing. Violin got more and more remote. Suddenly he stopped playing. There was a screech and silence. And then the dog came out. But the dog was singed all over. And blind George was never seen again. He might have just fallen over and wandered off somewhere. Here's the Roy Stone. We found the stone. It's in the kind of centre of a little marketplace. It's got a kind of indented bowl at the top, which is full of rainwater and a bit of kinder egg, by the look of it. <laughs> the Roy Stone was originally the base of Lady Roycea's cross erected in the 11th century at the crossing of Ermine Street and... Icknield Way. That was the ancient Roman road? It was, yeah. It passes through. But the hooded crow was once plentiful around Royston. In the 17th century, whilst fighting with the local cavaliers, Cromwell's roundheads mocked Royston folk as crows. Royston crow lives on as part of the town's heritage. Well, I never knew that. There you go. So the caves are under the streets. From what I have seen... It's a bell cave. It's ten metres underground and was chanced upon, as all of these kind of Templar things are. Yeah, I looked at some of the drawings online and it looked incredible. We found another sign opposite the Palace of King James I, which is just a very small brick building, actually. 1603 to 1625. On his journey from Scotland to London, where he was to succeed to the English throne, the king stopped for the night in Royston. He was so taken with the excellent hunting to be had in the area, he bought and rented sufficient properties in the town to house himself and his court whilst he indulged in his passion for hunting. And it was here in 1618 that King James I signed the death warrant of Sir Walter Raleigh. He's obviously back from a day's hunting and just thought, oh, what's he ever done for the country? Lose him. The front of the old palace was demolished by the Turnpike Trust in the early 1700s to allow for the widening of the road. Nothing changes. Nothing changes. Except the front of the palace. We tried to get into the museum, but we were warned away. It only opens it. Twice on Michaelmas. Yeah, but that's it. But it's quite an ancient town. Mm. A lot of history. 
right, we're just approaching the cave shop. Someone dusting the window. I wonder what wonderful mystical wares they have in there. Yes, shop. hopefully a Royston stone key ring at the very least. Oh, there it is. This must be it. Here. Right next to the shop. Some steps leading down below. Mm, looks good. It's quite spooky. Our guide for the day, Nicky, asked us not to record his actual tour. So we switched off our recorder and followed him through a nondescript-looking door just off the busy high street, down into a dimly lit, bell-shaped cavern. Overhead, the well shaft, which was once the only entrance to the cave, and around the walls, recesses with scorch marks where candles would have burned. Images online or in books don't really prepare you for standing in the actual space. Under a rumbling main road, in the chilly half-darkness, you're literally surrounded by haunting images. Childlike, medieval figures with simplistic skeletal faces hewn from the pale stone. The sheer number of carvings and the way they crowd together brings to mind someone's obsessive doodlings. But who that was, and what the cave was really for, remains a forgotten mystery. Rumours link the cave to the Knight Templars as a secret meeting place to perform their rites before their bloody end in 1312, and there's evidence to prove this in the symbol of two knights riding on the same horse, which is a recognised Templar sign, as well as what may be a depiction of Jacques de Molay, Grand Master of the Templars. If there wasn't a connection, why would these images be here? Or was this perhaps an early Freemasons lodge? The Masons are historically linked to James I, who spent a lot of time in Royston. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Pagan and Christian imagery sit side by side. Ashila Nagig, pagan earth goddess, and a quite beautifully rendered horse next to two versions of the crucifixion. The Holy Family and a depiction of St. Catherine holding aloft a wheel to symbolize the manner of her grisly martyr's death. Near to some mysterious crowned figures, sword-like crosses and the hand of God. Wherever you look, there are these strange juxtapositions, sinister circular patterns. St. Christopher, staff in hand, and the Christ child on his shoulder, a well-known protective sign for travellers. Disembodied hands with hearts carved into their palms. 
Out of all the places we'd been to so far, this felt the most secretive and mystical. Maybe because so little is really known about it. Anyway, you rejoin us after finishing our tour of the cave, when we had the chance to question our guide in some more detail. My name's Nicky, and so I managed here at the cave and at the Oyster Museum as well. When I um, went off to university and I was looking for a summer job, I turned to the cave and then sort of became a seasonal tourist guide and yeah. then um, sort of progressed from there. And then just, just sort of got more and more um, sucked into it and obs- slightly obsessed, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, and spending time down here and seeing things still that are new and learning more about it and researching the sort of more contextual history around yeah. the carvings. Yeah, it's worth pointing out this is unique in Britain, if not the world, mm-hmm. in sort of terms of combination of this style and structure. So it is, yeah. it is very special. Well, this is quite addictive as well, once you, as it were, dig down. Yeah. Yes. Oh, absolutely. This is quite... Yeah. And you get a sense of ownership almost, like, oh, this is it's part of me now, I'm part of it, it's part of me. Yeah, the layers make it more interesting. I think if you were to see a, a picture of a cave without any context, you might think, oh, that looks quite cool. But it's when people come and have the tour and they, they start understanding the layers of information behind what they're seeing, it, it, become, it brings it much more to life. It gave us a brilliant tour, which told so many bits of information, but just in broad terms, we're standing in this... I suppose it's about 30 foot high. 30 foot, well, yeah, about 30 feet, 9 metres down that yeah. we stood now. Um, we're directly below um, the, one of the main roads through Royston. You can hear it. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of a circular chamber with a hexagonal space on the floor, and all around the walls are these quite incredible carvings. Some of them are pagan, some of them are Christian symbols, some maybe bridge different parts of both and there are other historic figures within the carvings um, I was going to ask I mean it, they, they're very similar in style it's almost like one hand or one artist possibly. there's no way of really knowing I mean yeah you're right stylistically especially the way that the bodies have, have been drawn the way that they cinch in at the waist and the, the, the long noses and sort of the spherical eyes that's repeated throughout, which suggests that it was done by one hand or a group of hands at, this, at a similar time. Um, having said that, it's not implausible that one person started some carvings in, in one style and then it's just been copied or repeated. Writing, lots of things are identifiable by the style of graffiti in places and it's interesting how writing styles change. The way that the, the carvings have been drawn and the way that the shields and swords and crowns are depicted does point to a very specific period at the end of the um, sort of 1300s. So. But the first people who discovered this, that was in the 1800s, did you say? The first discovery was 1742. Yeah, completely accidental. Prior to that, but there's no documentary evidence that the cave existed here, let alone who used it or why. Yeah. So it does really um, lend itself to the sort of enigma. It lights up so many people's imaginations. Yeah. I and suppose I they wouldn't have known how long it would have taken to have carved this out either. No, because that's completely determined by the number of people involved and the time at which that's been made because of the tools available to them. 
it's going to take a drastically longer amount of time for one person with more primitive tools than a group with more advanced tools. Yeah. Originally, there was a lot of earth concealing all of the carvings. They were digging foundations in the butter market above. Uh, workmen's shovels hit upon a millstone buried in the earth. When they pulled that away, they discovered a well-like cavity running down into the chalk. They lowered a, a small child down. Um, he found the cave filled with earth more than halfway up. When he reported out to the top, rooms of treasure spread. They came down, they excavated over 200 buckets, loads of earth out, and that's when they uncovered the lower chamber with the, the carvings. You were saying there were rumours of, you know, tunnels and other... Yeah, I mean, de decades there have been rumours of cavities, tunnels, voids beneath oysters, yeah. perhaps even interconnected, running from the from pubs to churches to the caves. There have never been anything discovered that doesn't have an explanation, like a nice house or a cellar, yeah. um, and certainly underground tunnels weren't uncommon for passing between buildings in medieval period. Uh, but we've never found anything of this type or anything that's unexplained. Mm. And do you have a specific feeling about what the space was? Um, I, I like to stay on bias as possible, uh, so I can present as such. I do prescribe more to the humbler origins, the sort of hermitage theory, the Anchorite theory. Yeah. I certainly think it's not... Uh, a coincidence that it's so close to the ancient crossroads, to the Ikea Way, to the Neolithic and Bronze Age burial mounds just down the road. I think that probably has a connection between all of them. And that ley line theory as well, it's on those, it's on those leys. Yes, so um, it's said to be on the uh, Michael and Mary ley line, and it's uh, thought to be one of the few places where the two lines uh, divert off each mm. other. So crossroads often were kind of places of gallows and other sort of legends and things as well, weren't they? Very kind of charged areas. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't think we had any sort of gallows. There's ones just down the road, but we're said to have had a cross and obviously we had the, the burial mound. So yeah. there would have been people in groups passing through this area for thousands of years. And so their convergence of that sort of energy and landmarks and wayfinders. Yeah. It's interesting, the Templar kind of carving, the fact that it's a heretic rather than, you know, they're not being a celebrated figure, they're more like a sort of persecuted... Yes, yeah, so that perhaps is to, to tell a story. I don't know if it's necessarily the carver's own personal opinion towards the, the yeah. group. Probably more so just to tell the story of, of what happened. And... Many people say you can read the cave a bit like a storybook. Mm -hmm. um, it has that comic book-esque feel to it, especially yeah. when you go around, clockwise around, and, and you see the stories depicted and you recognise the characters. There's a kind of strange mix of pagan symbolism, the Shiva and the gig and the horse, which are kind of the first thing you see as you come in. They're the sort of central figures which maybe suggests that perhaps they were there first. I think, I think it's very purposeful that the carvings have been placed where they are. 
with Catherine on the west and, and St. Christopher on the north uh, below the entrance. Yes, yeah, so St. Christopher is often by the entrance and exits, particularly churches, um, and, and St. George on the south and the light in the east. I think these are purposeful. St. George is not so much associated with the south, though there are people who say that that is St. Michael and may therefore be where the St. Michael line comes through. There's a huge depth to each of the carvings, mm. um, and far more than it's possible to sort of dictate in an hour's tour. Yes, and you mentioned the apotropaic protection marks, witch marks. That we have a yeah, huge quantity of, of witch marks, the double Vs, the, the, the yeah. windows. The, and that is not necessarily original or contemporary with the cave. Mm. It may have well been carved after 1742 in its discovery. Uh, I can't imagine the people of Wiston thinking this was the most holy place. So uh, they may well have wanted to add the witch marks to protect them. And, and on that note, there's a huge wealth of the graffiti in the cave as well, lots of names and dates. covered in kind of carvings and names. And that, as far as we know, is all modern. And by modern, I mean post-1742. Uh, and we think that because... William Stukeley, who was a, a very famous antiquarian of, of that time, he visited the cave, he drew what he saw, and he made no reference to any of the, the lettering or the witch marks or anything like that. Okay. But there is quite a lot of artistic license with what he did for, so... So he made sketches, with Yeah, so he did a series of sketches, yeah. 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 Well, of the carvings and, and the, and the uh, figures and, mm. and the structures. Yeah. It's quite chilly down here, isn't it? It is quite chilly. We've discovered this with chalk caves. Yes. It's pretty chilly and damp. <laughs> well, I don't know about other chalk caves. Certainly with us, we maintain a microclimate. So we are pretty constant throughout the year. You, you won't find it varying much beyond 10 degrees in winter or summer. So, and that's actually vital to maintain the microclimate for the protection of, of the carvings. Because chalk is quite a sort of delicate thing. It, yeah, incredibly de- delicate. Uh, it's incredibly difficult to try and combat the conservation issues we have particularly with water um, and as the, the cave is such a unique site there are no instances from which to take examples of effective conservation because we're sort of writing the book as we go along um, and, and chalk is so so fragile that using the traditional methods to protect it like the chemicals just would yeah. I mean, behind you there's a face, well, the two faces are kind of, maybe they've eroded, you know, because it's a completely blank head, isn't it? That one's not a great example because that's a, a dodgy 20th century pair, job. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there are quite a few, actually. You'll see some dodgy um, water repairs. But um, there are certain instances where whole features have, have crumbled, fallen away. The reclined figure below the hand of God... You can see in old photos as late as the 1950s that that still existed. So that's pure water damage. Um, you have areas that have been chipped away, features that have been become, become less pronounced, symbols which would have been there but now long, no longer legible, mm. which takes pieces away from the puzzle and makes it even harder to try and determine what's going on. Yeah. You being here, have you noticed like, oh, this is fading or this is beginning to... The row of figures here, you see whether you've got the browning of the chalk that is um, microbiological growth, which is not harmful to humans, uh, but certainly doesn't help the case of the chalk. And that has certainly uh, worsened since I've been here. But, but no significant damage has happened since.
thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't do it anyway. <laughs> it wasn't me. It wasn't me enough. Do you think there'll ever come a time where you might have to close it? So for preservation, as you to say, right, okay, do you know what? Like they do with some monuments. Yeah. Going, we have to preserve this and people, footfall, and just the general wear and tear of it. Well, like I was saying earlier about it's so difficult to find a conservation cure. There is an acceptance from our team, for the conservation teams that work with us, that there is always going to be a low level of deterioration to the cave, which does mean, technically, there will come a time when the carvings will, will crumble to nothing. Mm. But that is a long, long way off. But perhaps in that time period, we might follow a, a similar model to the, the caves in France, for instance, where you yeah. visit a replica of it. Um, visitors do play a part in our conservation challenges, especially with humidity, uh, moisture of breath, things like that, but uh, not enough to, to cause grave concern. We should stop talking. We should stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> We're in the cave. just have candles on the relief is so much more prominent also depending where that candle is um, in relation to the carving and the way that that changes the whole feel of the space yeah and you think as well with the shape and the sound just the resonance just with our voices Mm. and if you were singing and how it changes how if I move it changes the sounds if you were chanting or hymns or something it would have a a very heavy Feel you would feel you very much in the presence of something. Yeah, something other. yeah the resonance would have been incredible. Uh, acoustics are great. You, you feel a sense of importance, not necessarily nationally or to something as grand as the Templars, but to whoever did use it. You feel yeah. that intimacy. Yeah. It's a direct link with their beliefs and how they viewed the world and the amount of time that would have gone into doing this, especially if it were to be painted, which it's thought to have been how important it was to them as individuals. It's interesting you say about going down and adding out to the earth. I think the act of doing that is quite symbolic. It is. Especially for a lot of the historical groups that we've been talking about today. Mm-hmm. And there are, you mentioned womb-like as well. There are lots of people who say it's sort of coming down into the womb of, of earth and, and maybe being some sort of purgatory thing between yeah. the hell and, and mm-hmm. land above. Yeah, absolutely. Now you've said about the anchorite thing, you think, yeah, I can imagine someone in here slowly yeah. carving away. It's almost like a Bayer tapestry, telling that story in all the different parts and yeah. whims and fancies of, oh, yes, we should put this here. And yeah. I should carve like the figures behind the martyr, thinking, yes, let's do an audience, we'll do an audience for yeah. this, that'll give it a, a yeah. grandeur, this'll give it more of a, uh, a story. 
I mean, it's, it's a work of art. It's what, what it is, yeah. really. You can, you can imagine them changing their minds about bits and thinking, oh, actually, I'll move that there and sort of chiselling away what they've done and raising it. Yeah. yeah, they've had a couple of goes at the crucifixion. Some very kind of sinister things as well, the hand with the heart and, and the circular kind of spiral marks with diagonal crosses, which you think might be witch mark. Could be witch marks, could be protection symbols. Um, concentric circles uh, covered pretty much everything through history, so it's hard to pinpoint exactly what these ones are. But. Yeah, but those crosses, you could also look at that as being like a maypole. The Charlie and Charles, this place, is the interpretation behind it, and the fact that no one's really that wrong, yeah. <laughs> and you can interpret it sort of within a, a, quite a large remit. So after it was discovered, it wasn't sort of them protected, presumably. People could just could come down, and that's why you've got graffiti. Yeah, so um, after it was discovered in 1742, all visitors came down the northern entrance shaft, which you can see is, is quite precarious. Yeah. And then it was only in 1790, when the modern access tunnel was dark, that the visitors stopped using the northern shaft, and they started using that uh, eastern tunnel but in that 50 year period everybody came down a rope on request and as late as the 20th century you've got school kids coming down here with their tuck shop um, purchases and playing in here without supervision so a huge amount of graffiti was done at that time yeah it's fascinating as well just reading the names like W Little looks like Jordan can't be Jordan that looks like Jordan yeah something copy that she wouldn't be <laughs> she wouldn't be definitely carving her name into the rock okay well thank you so much yes thank you you're very welcome written and presented by Tim Downey and Justin Chubb with music by Justin. Special thanks to Nikki at the Royston Cave and Willow and the team at the Hellfire Caves. For more information, go to hellfirecaves.co.uk and roystoncave.co.uk Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.